Bailey. Welcome to True Crime B&B. This is our first time trying to do any video recording, so we are not camera people. And if we seem awkward, it's because we're awkward. Also, our first time with our brand new microphone, Snowball. So mm -hmm. if our sound quality is a little bit different, that'll be why. With all the new things that we have going on today. Yeah, we're excited. I hope we remembered to write stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was supposed to do that? Yes. Okay, so I'm going first this week? Yes. Okay. This week I have a story out of Tennessee, and I was telling you last night, mine always end up being in 2011, so this is, or like 2010, so this is another one that takes place in 2011. All right. We're going to start with Holly Bobo, who was born on October 12th, 1990. I've heard of Holly Bobo, but I can't remember yeah, that I've story. Yeah, I heard her name, and I didn't know all the details to it, but okay. she lived in Darden, Tennessee with her parents and her older brother, Clint, who was 25, and she was 20 at the time. Okay. In 2011, she was attending nursing school at the University of Tennessee, which was five miles away in a different town, but she could commute easily. She also at the time had a long-term boyfriend by the name of Drew Scott. Okay. And that's kind of all the background you're going to need here. Holly and Drew. Holly and Drew have been dating. Got it. Actually, right before that, all this went down, Drew had just given her a promise ring saying that like, once you graduate college, we're going to get married. So things are pretty exciting looking up in her world. On the morning of April 13th, <laughs> 2011, Holly woke up at 4.30 a.m. to study for an exam that she had that day. Her parents were getting ready for work, but they hadn't left just yet, so her mom actually ended up packing her a lunch to take to her exam, so that way when she got out of the exam, she could have something to eat that was easy. Okay, that was nice. So her dad, Dana... I wouldn't have done that. I know you wouldn't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so her dad, Dana had left about 5.30 a.m. and she was still sitting in the kitchen studying at that point. And then her mother, Karen, left about 7 and knew that Holly was supposed to leave about 7.45-ish for her exam. Okay. So about 7.30 a.m., Holly answered a call from her boyfriend, Drew, and soon after that, around 7.40 a.m., a neighbor... Now, they live in a pretty woody neighborhood. It's like kind us. of like ours, yeah, where we have a house and the neighbors are within the stone's throw, but you can't see them. Right. That kind of situation. Mm. Wait a second. Let's not tell everybody that. We don't want anyone to come and murder us. That No, but keep in mind, our neighbors can still hear us. <laughs> no okay. murders. No murders in no the building. No murders in this building. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like I said, she had a phone call at 7.30 a.m. from her boyfriend, Drew. Then about 7.40 a.m., a nearby neighbor heard a scream coming from the Bobo family residence. Oh, God. But he didn't really go investigate. He kind of figured it was like horseplay. But just in case, he knew the family, and so he called Karen at her job, so that's Holly's mom. Okay. And Karen was a school teacher. I think she taught elementary school at the time. And so the receptionist at the school actually picked up the phone call and said, oh, I'll pass along the message as soon as she gets out of class. And Karen was not alerted to what was going on until after that. Oh, wow. So soon after that, her Holly's brother Clint actually woke up to his dogs barking inside the house and he kind of was like what the hell are they barking at and he looked out of his window and saw holly the way i could describe it to you and i'll post this on our instagram a picture of the house it's, it's kind of like a ranch style house but then the garage is attached but it comes out like an l shape in front of the house yeah so if you were having a bedroom at the front of the house you could see into the garage okay so when Clint woke up and looked out of his window, he saw Holly in the garage kneeling on kneeling down, talking to somebody. And he said that they were both kind of in shadows. That's bizarre. But he was wearing all camouflage and he had a black hat on or something like that. So he, he couldn't really see who it was. But he knew at this point, 
Holly's boyfriend, Drew, was also supposed to be leaving on a hunting trip. So he kind of figured, oh, that's probably Drew. Okay. He wasn't really alarmed by this. They were talking angrily, and they Holly wasn't really talking at all. She was just giving short, angry responses to whatever this guy was saying. So instead, he called his mom, Karen, who he had the direct cell phone number of, and finally got a hold of her and telling her, something's kind of weird going on with Holly in the garage. Yeah. He And she hasn't gotten the message about the scream yet. Not yet, no. Okay. So then Karen is kind of, no, because she knew for a fact that Drew, the boyfriend, was on a hunting trip because Drew was going hunting on her mother's property that day. So she already knew Drew was counties away already there. So she... She knew that he had physically already arrived? He had already arrived and checked in. I think he was going with her grandparents hunting that day. Okay. So she was, no, he's already checked in. He's, that's not Drew talking to her. So she started to go... That's not Drew. You need no, to call 911. Don't like this. Right now. Yeah. Okay. That's terrifying as a mother. I know. It's terrifying as a brother is sitting there watching her and being like, that's not Drew? I can't imagine. Okay. Yeah. After he hung up with his mother, Clint looked outside again and saw that Holly was no longer in the garage with the man. So he went and grabbed his pistol and he ran around the house to the back of the house and saw that Holly and the man were now disappearing past the wood line into the forest. Oh no. So he kind of tried to chase them down, but they were moving really quickly and he couldn't catch back up to them. So instead he came back to the house and just waited for police to arrive because Karen at this point had called 911. Ten minutes later, after they disappeared into the wood line... The police did arrive around the same time as Karen did, because she had driven home from work. After this, an extensive search began. It was actually in the 2020 I watched, so if you look up Holly Bobo on 2020, you can find that on YouTube. It was actually the biggest manhunt search in recent history in Tennessee. Wow. So everybody from counties and counties over, everybody was flooding through these woodlands and just arm by arm searching through to find her. And they found, when they got there in the garage, a big blood pool next to her car. Oh, wow. So they knew this was not good, no matter what happened. So they then contacted AT&T, which was Holly's phone plan at the time, to track her phone, which showed it traveling north to a wooded area near... So she still had her phone? She or whoever took her. Okay. And it was still pinging at this point. So they watched it travel north to a wooded area near Interstate 40... And then it kind of went along Interstate 40 and then went right back south, taking a new route this time. So it kind of looked, they were like, oh crap, they're going to see where we are and then went to a different place just to hide out. So through this big manhunt that took place throughout all the woods and throughout the county, they found various items scattered on different random country roads. Not all the items were found together. They found things like her lunchbox, which still had the lunch that her mom had packed that morning. They found a receipt with her name on it, her school ID, her cell phone, and then in a separate location, her SIM card, which had been discarded. Oh, wow. That's when you find the SIM card removed from the phone. Yeah, you know, well, they already had blood, so you already knew something bad had gone down. Well, you can injure yourself and leave blood, but you're not accidentally taking the SIM card out and taking it to a different place than the phone is. Exactly. This was in the following weeks, so this went weeks without their family hearing anything except finding all of her various stuff just scattered throughout Tennessee. So the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation became immediately suspicious of her brother Clint because he had been the last person to see her, (laughs) and they were kind of like, what do you mean she just disappeared past the wood line? You didn't, you couldn't catch up to her and she was that, only that far away, but they actually ended up searching his computer and monitoring his phone and polygraphed him twice, which honestly means nothing, but just to put that out there. They ended up clearing Clint in the end and he was, in fact, completely innocent of this. He really was just a brother, I'm glad clueless, he was, glad like most boys. glad to hear that he had nothing to do with it, but I wouldn't yeah. have thought he had anything. 
well, to what do is, with it. You just got to look into the people close and the last sure. person to see them, of course. So again, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation honed in on actually a local sex offender who matched the description that Clint gave to them completely down to height, weight, color of hair, and facial features, and who also lived near where some of the items had been thrown okay. onto the road. Doesn't he, seem like he would have thrown them near his place, though. You would think, but criminals aren't always that smart. Okay. So, Valid. Yeah. So he had actually <laughs> spent almost all of his life in and out of jail. I think he was 40 at this point in Holly was 20, so he spent almost all of his life in and out of jail for kidnapping and rape. He was out at this time, though. Police did a complete search of his property with cadaver dogs, which alerted to two of his vehicles and multiple tools of his, like a hammer and a saw. They were like, okay, we've got our guy. This, we've got to do more for this. So they started bringing in forensic and testing the vehicles and testing the DNA swabs off of the tools and stuff, and there was actually no DNA found. His home was then wiretapped, but they never got anything against him this entire time. So unfortunately, they kind of had to be like, there's no proof that this guy had anything to do with it, even though he seems like a likely suspect. So what were the cadaver dogs hitting on then? They don't know. They, they still to this day, they actually, there was one detective in the documentary documentary saying the whole time that he was I know this is the guy I know this is the guy even after they end up getting people later on putting them in jail he still to this day says I still think it was this guy so I just thought that was important to mention it is it's important to mention and and he actually became so like tunnel visioned on this case focusing on this guy that they actually took him off the case and he got fired from the police department because he kept going behind their back and trying to catch this guy in something But one more question about the cadaver dogs. So they were only searching for cadaver. They were not searching for the scent of Holly as a live person. I believe so. Okay. I believe so. And I think they kind of mentioned a little bit. I think they also could have been scenting off of if he had gone hunting and gotten a deer. If it was just some decomposing body. Okay. Maybe Mm. it would have a similar scent and they would... Probably would have a possibly similar scent because I've heard it. of people burying dead animals on top of murdered bodies in the ground. Because it's hard, and then they get to the animal first and go, oh, it was just a deer. Yeah, I've heard of that. A little bit after this, actually, I believe it was around 2013, so this went cold for a couple of years. Someone tipped off the police to four small-time criminals in the area, so... There were two brothers named Zach and Dylan Adams, a friend of theirs named Jason Autry, and Jason's cousin, Shane Austin. These guys had not done anything violent or anything like that in their past. They had only gotten in trouble for drugs and doing sales of drugs and stuff like that. But, you know, when you get into a shady business like that, it's only so long before you start escalating to bigger crimes and stuff like that. So they're, well, people are... Well, sometimes. Sometimes. Not everyone does. Yeah. I mean, apparently Harrison Ford used to be a pot dealer, so. (laughs) Pot's not even a drug anymore. Come on. But they kind of became suspicious of these guys because they had been around town. They were saying things to people at bars like, oh, you just pissed me off. You're going to end up like Holly. And it was big news in this town. So, like, you can't be doing that if you didn't fucking do it. Like, you know. It seems like that would be an ill-advised thing to be thrown around. So, Holly's parents actually heard the news before the police even did. They heard it from, like, friends of friends and stuff. And so, her parents, Karen and Dana, they are so bomb in this documentary. I love them. But they decided, you know what? The police haven't done anything for us in the past two years. So, they decided to hunt down these four guys and corner them individually and interrogate them them goddamn selves you know yeah anyway so they ended up getting nothing from that unfortunately but i just love the initiative of 
Well, I mean, if it's your kid that's missing, yeah, and you feel like there's someone who may know something and is not being asked about it, mm-hmm. why not? I mean, yeah, you might end up getting in trouble for what you're doing, but if you don't ask them any questions, they aren't going to have any reason to give you any information. And they might say something to you they wouldn't say to the police. You don't know. Especially if they're already in, like, shady business. You don't know what they're... Yeah. But anyway, so police heard from Karen and Dana that they would like them to look into these four gentlemen. I don't... I use that term loosely. (laughs) So they pulled them in to formally interrogate them. Dylan Adams, which was the younger brother of the two, he did younger than he actually was. So developmentally delayed. Yes. Okay. So he ended up cracking first because he in fact knew that... he was less mature than the He was less mature and he, as it later turns out, really didn't have anything to do with it. He was just friends with the people who were involved, so he knew of it. He says that he confesses and he kind of goes back and forth on his stories, but at the end of the day, what he ended up saying was that all four of them had sexually assaulted Holly at Zach's house after he snatched her. And then either Zach or Jason Autry had taken her off and killed her. He didn't know who had done it. All four ended up being indicted for her murder. So why did they do this? They snatched her out of her garage at 7 o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. There's no why. That's the frustrating thing is most of these people will not help the police at all. They won't even once they're busted. Like, it's just... I fucking hate these kind I of crimes. I hate people. I know. Where they, they just have some sexual motivation... And use this person like they're disposable. Mm-hmm. I know. You know, I just don't understand how you can well, take someone and take them off the planet because you have a sexual motivation. There were some people that testified in these trials against <clears throat> these men because they were jailhouse snitches, basically, where their sentence would be lighter if they ended up saying what they had heard these people say in prison. Yeah. And one of the comments one of the murderers ended up making was, oh, I chose a fine specimen. I couldn't have gotten a hotter piece of ass than that to Jesus take that Christ. day. And it's just so sickening. Jesus Christ. So. It's just so upset. So all four were indicted for her murder. Police ended up offering Shane Austin, who was just a friend of all of these guys. They offered him immunity in order for testimony against the others because he was the only one saying, I literally took no part in this. I just knew about it. But he ends up telling them everything they want to know. But the one question he doesn't know is where Holly is or what happened, who killed her. So he's he knows about it, but he did not participate in the sexual assaults on he her? He possibly... I think they were... Because at this point, they were going for the death penalty for these kids. Okay. So they kind of said, you get immunity in the death penalty as long as you testify, and then we'll just charge you for the sexual assault. So he did admit to being taking part in that part, but he didn't know anything about what had happened to her after, if she was dead, where she could be found if she was dead. Now, Misty, what I want to know is, and I'm sorry I keep interrupting you. No, but, it's okay. So four of these guys are assaulting this girl. Mm-hmm. What do they think is going to happen to this girl after this assault is done? Even if only one or two of them took her somewhere after this, the two that didn't go knew something bad was going to happen because they're not just going to take her back and put her in the garage where they found her. Well, that's what infuriates me is they keep offering these people immunity. No, if you knew that even if you weren't there and you can sleep at night knowing that you had nothing to do with her murder, yes, you did. You did you absolutely you... did. You could have at any point called the police and said, hey, just leave out the part about sexually assaulting her even if you want. But hey, these guys are going to take this girl and kill her somewhere. That's I don't right. know where. Here's his license plate. Whatever. But somebody who's just going about her life, trying to study for an exam. I know. And she... Jesus Christ. It's just, it's so upsetting Ugh, that so... these cretins 
think that it's in their right. And rights. if you saw pictures of these guys, you would be like... That they think that they have the right to sexually abuse somebody just to get their rocks off, and then they go kill her so that she won't tell on them. It just en- enrages me. And the thing is, I don't even know if that's me. why they killed her. I don't know if they had some kind of weird... They just won't talk. So anyway, on September 7th, 2014, two hunters were hunting for ginseng. Is that a... Root is used in teas and... Okay. It's, it's used for different nutritional supplements. Gotcha. Because I thought something like that, but they were two ginseng hunters. They were out in the woods hunting for ginseng, and they found human remains in a wooded area off of Interstate 40. Which, if I can remind you, when they pinged her phone, they showed her phone tracking all the way up to I-40 in a wooded area. That exact area, before they turned around and came back south, is where they found her body. So it's kind of assumed at that point that's they what they were doing. They dumped her and then they took time. all her stuff and dumped it all over right. the place. What human remains they found are still not entirely available, but they did kind of make it seem like there was some mutilation happening because they found her in a bucket, so that's obviously not a full body. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is they found her skull among that, and in that they found a bullet hole on the back right of her skull. Right before the trial, they actually got Shane Austin, who was the guy who said, I'm willing to testify against the others. I only had a part in sexual assault and all that. He actually, again, they had no DNA on them. They had This was their only proof that these guys were the ones who did it. And so Shane Austin actually ends up hanging himself in a Florida hotel room. Before he testifies? Before he has a chance to testify. Because what a spineless prick. I can't. Well, were they in custody when he did this? Yes. So they didn't kill him. Right. He, no, he this was just he, he literally just out. felt so guilty and probably was like I can't face a group of people and tell them I did this because oh, I know the least you could do. So again, they have no physical evidence connecting them, only circumstantial at this point, and now they don't even have a first-hand witness that's willing to testify, but they still ended up charging them all for first-degree murder, announcing that they will be seeking the death penalty. All plead not guilty because of course they do. So the first person to go on trial was Zach Adams. So he seemed to be the ringleader of all this. He's, he's the, the person who snatched him. her that was seen by Clint. So during Zach Adams' trial, his defense lawyer, who I'm going to include her name because she is disgusting, just from what you can see on this documentary, they show her opening statement. And she literally, her name is Jennifer Thompson, because shame on you. So she actually started out by saying, he did not... And then she kind of goes, <laughs> as a matter of fact, no, Holly Bobo. And she's so smirky and just gross and had never even laid eyes on her. And she literally says it like that. He, in fact, didn't even know Holly Bobo <laughs> and didn't Jesus never even laid eyes on her. So, yeah, I want to slap her bitch face like, off. Even if you're just like, <clears throat> it's still a murder trial. You, you don't laugh. You don't laugh. I mean, it's not the time to try to yeah. lighten the mood. And if that was my defense lawyer, I'd be okay, retrial. I have ineffective yeah. counsel because that's... My counsel has no... Just made me hate him more, you know? Has no moral compass here. Right. But later on, Holly's mom ended up taking the stand and being interviewed by this defense counselor. And so Karen gets on the stand and states that actually he did know the family and was very familiar with the family as she was his goddamn fourth grade teacher. Oh, wow. So, yeah. But soon after that, she actually broke down crying. Like, they had to take her out because she was inconsolable. Well, I can understand why. Can you imagine just being like, I knew that sweet little baby when he was an innocent child, and now he's gone and done this to my family. Unbelievable. That's just 
Also, during this trial, they announced that they found a gun similar to one that Zach Adams used to own, and they had found it in a nearby drainage ditch, but because it had been underwater this entire time, and again, this is happening in 2014, it's likely been underwater since 2011, it was kind of impossible to prove it was the murder weapon. I think because of the way it was rusted over, they couldn't even do a ballistics test, but they could tell you what kind of ammo it was used. However, they could prove that it was a 32 caliber weapon and that was the same that matched her bullet wound in her skull. Later on in that trial again, Jason Autry, so he's the friend of theirs. There's the two brothers, the one that killed himself, and there's Jason Autry. He surprised everyone by actually deciding to give a testimony and turning against the others. Not out of the goodness of his heart, I'm sure, for a reduced sentence. (laughs) Right, he's trying to avoid the death penalty. He's like, yeah. He ends up saying that Zach had called him that morning that he kidnapped Holly and had asked him to get rid of a body he had wrapped in a quilt in the back of his truck. He, of course, goes, Jason's like, sure, why not? I've got nothing going on today, and decides to help him. They drive up to the Tennessee River under I-40, again, where they found her body. And they actually, this part is so awful. So he says this on the stand, and he's very matter-of-fact about it. Jason says... They put the quilt on the side of the river and they were intending to push her into it, but as they stepped on her to push her, they heard an exhale coming from her body. Oh my god. And he literally quoted in the on the stand in front of her entire family, he said, Well, hey, that bitch is still alive. And they decided to go back to the truck. Zag grabbed his pistol and proceeded to shoot Holly in the back of her head. <sighs> So panicking because they said it echoed because they were right under an overpass bridge. So it echoed throughout. They were worried that people were going to draw attention to this scene. So they put her body back into the pickup truck and then he dropped off Jason somewhere. And that's the last Jason knew anything about what had happened. So he says. Okay, well, Jason was just as big a part of this. I know. I'm sorry. If somebody (laughs) brings, I don't know. You still didn't call anybody? Well, and he didn't say, hey, Zach, how about we don't shoot her in the hey, head? Hey, she's still alive. It's not too late. Let's take her to... to the emergency room. Right. At the end of the day, Holly's family agreed to take the death penalty off of the table just for the peace of mind and to ensure that the jury convicted them of guilty. So September 22nd, 2017, Zach Adams was found guilty on all charges and received life without parole, along with two consecutive 25-year sentences on top of that for the rape and kidnapping. On January 18th, 2018, Zach's younger brother, Dylan, entered an Alford plea, which, if you don't know, means that you maintain your innocence, but you can accept that the jury will likely find you guilty, and until you can... Yeah, I don't yeah. know when they started calling it that. It used to be called No Contest. I've heard... Yeah, I don't know when that... And, and so... It had to be, like, early 2000s, because... It wasn't that long ago that... Yeah, I don't know. So he went through with an Alfred plea, and he, with that, received 35 years without parole. His charges were facilitation of first-degree murder and especially aggravated kidnapping, just with the knowledge that this had happened and not telling anybody. Mm-hmm. Jason Autry, the one that had testified after taking the plea deal, received a reduced sentence of only eight years' time served. So at the point that he got that conviction, he had already served his eight years and was released from prison September 16th, 2020, which is not okay. But no, I mean, but- I get that they didn't have any physical evidence and they probably needed at least one person to come through and say, especially since the other guy hung himself. All right, but that just shows me how guilty he really was. So, I mean, I if it would have at least gotten the same 35 years as the brother, that would have been fair to me, I think. But I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a this judge. This whole thing is just so sickening. 
It's just so sickening. I mean, it really upsets my my whole... I know, and it hurts my heart to say at the end of this, we still, they all pleaded not guilty. None of them are really saying exactly what happened. So we still, to this day, don't know who actually sexually assaulted, if it was all Zach and the others just didn't know anything or whatever. I don't know. They are where they need to be, except for Jason. I still think he needs to be in jail, but... Mm That's pretty much as good as we're going to get for this scenario right now. In 2017, though, Holly's cousin, Whitney Duncan, have you ever heard of her? No. She's a pretty famous country musician, which isn't that shocking because Holly lived like 100 miles south of Nashville. So obviously you're going to know probably somebody in the country music scene. But her cousin, Whitney Duncan, released a song called Better Place in Holly's Memory, and I actually had heard the song before on my country station in Columbus. I never knew that what it never meant. Never knew it was about Holly Bubble. And now I'm going to cry every time I hear it. So, because, wow. yeah. Yeah, except that thing about the better place, that sounds like a bunch of baloney to me. She would have rather been in her life Living yeah. her life like every other person her age. Taking her exam, marrying, what's his face? Drew Scott. Drew. I mean. I know. And I just think about her poor brother. Just knowing like, oh, I just got up, saw her outside, and then I was witnessing her literally being kidnapped and I didn't And know. he had his pistol. And he had his pistol. He just couldn't find him. That poor guy. Yeah. I mean, if he could have just gotten close enough, he could have shot his pistol in the air and said, look, I see you. Let go of my sister. Right. Well, the thing is, is that he kind of, when he was talking about it, he said she didn't look like she was going against her will. Like, he wasn't holding on to her or anything. He wasn't forcing her along. But she was in front of him. So he was, maybe he already had the gun pointed at her back. He probably did. And so, but then again, also, who's to say if Clint had gone after him in the woods, confronted him, and gone into a shooting match? It could have gone both ways. So I hope he doesn't have regret. I know you can't second guess things that happen, but that's just awful. And I'm sorry I brought you another bummer this week. I just really... I know. Why do you you hate me? I don't hate you. (laughs) And I'm sorry to say that I'm kind of breaking the rules today. Okay. Because I don't have a super uplifting story today. I have kind of a salacious version. Actually, all of my Architect Mayhem stories have been a little bit salacious. But this one is from the 1930s. Okay. And so it shouldn't be quite as raw. A little less raw. fresh wound. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a little less raw than some of the other ones that I have done. Like I said, this week is edition three of Architect Mayhem, but this week, instead of a murderous architect, we have a murdered famous architect in the United Kingdom in the first half of the 20th century. Okay. And my voice is kind of raw because I've had that. I've little had the end. Thing yeah, the on. end of my little sinus issues from last week. So my voice is a little rough. I haven't been smoking. I promise. It's just I. Uh... Okay, mom. <laughs> Those hippie sticks. <laughs> <laughs> never in my life. You know, I've never smoked a cigarette in my entire really? life. Really? Never once. Right. Never had the urge. I always thought it was disgusting. Well, then you smell like it for the rest of ten years. So. <laughs> All right. All right. Francis Mawson Rattenberry was born in Yorkshire, England in 1868. And in 1892, he sailed to Canada to seek his fame and fortune as an architect in what was then a young and developing British Columbia. Okay. So the first year that he was there, he won an open competition that was to design the Parliament buildings for Victoria, which is the capital of British Columbia. This sounds like a competition you'd join. Well, I would if I ever did anything architectural outside of my job. Yeah. Well, it's not like you have a lot of free time on your hands to do that. That's true. I have now, what, three jobs? Four? If you count the work on the house. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> 
By the 1920s, Francis had become a world-famous architect, and he had designed many celebrated buildings, both in British Columbia and he had done some in Australia also. All right. He was well-established, and when he was 57 years old, he met and fell in love with a woman named Alma Pakenham, who was just 24 at the time. God, what is with all these stories of women and their... Their older paramours. All right. Alma was a flapper and a talented pianist, so she was fairly a progressive, youthful woman. Yeah. You know, the ones in the 20s where all the old ladies had the big jewels and the lacy dresses, but the flappers all had the, their hair bobbed short. They knew where all of the best underground drinking spots were. That's right. So she was, she was one of them, and okay. she was a talented pianist and songwriter. She had already had two husbands. One had been killed in the First World War in France. And then she had separated from the other husband in the early 1920s. Upon their first meeting, Alma had said to Francis, Do you know that you have a lovely face? And he was immediately infatuated. Because he wasn't a great looking guy. He was was an okay looking guy. Yeah. But he was nothing that you would look at him and go, Oh my God, what a heartthrob. Men are so easy. Yeah. He was was no Dr. What was his name from last week? Oh, Dr. Gandhi. Yes, he was no Dr. Gandhi. God, I miss Dr. Gandhi. (laughs) So, Rattenbury's marriage with Florence Nunn had been strained already for several years, and they already lived in separate wings of their house. Naturally, Francis wanted a divorce so that he could be with Alma because he was just head over heels in love with her. Right. Despite the scandal, the public scorn, and the controversy, he went ahead and he left Florence, his wife of 25 years. He was pretty insolent about the breakup with Florence, though. It's said that when he moved out, having flaunted the affair for some time beforehand, he had the power and gas turned off at the house she was still living in, which is a pretty shitty thing to do. Yeah, what an ass. But he persisted in getting the divorce, and he left Florence and his two children with her behind. (sighs) Francis married Alma shortly thereafter, and because his reputation had been quite sullied in Victoria, Francis and Alma moved with her young son from her second marriage to Bournemouth, England, and in 1929, the couple had another son together. Okay. By the end of 1934, the family placed a newspaper ad looking for household help, including some housework as well as chauffeuring. George Percy Stoner, a handsome 17-year-old local boy, was hired for the position. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. George was shy, he was inexperienced with girls, and he quickly became smitten with Alma, who is older, worldly, glamorous. It's always a 17-year-old dude hitting on you when you're, like, in your mid-20s. I don't get the impression he was hitting on her. He just had a crush on her. Okay, but I But gotcha. she was seeing that he had a crush on her. Yeah. And she was bored with her aging husband, so she instigated flirting with him. Okay. They quickly began an affair. Soon, George had become obsessed with Alma, and he became angry and jealous of any interaction or any kind of kindness between Alma and Francis. This is why we don't date teenagers. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, pretty much if she's married to someone else, you don't get to be jealous. Good grief. George. So, (laughs) So Francis... The aging husband had begun to drink heavily as his career had started to wind down because he was in semi-retirement and because he had lost his reputation after all those sordid events in Victoria, British Columbia, Mm -hmm. and because of the way he had treated Florence, people didn't have a very good opinion of him anymore. Right. So he had become reclusive and he was very unhappy. According to their son, John... Francis had also become impotent, probably health issues, because by that age, you know, he's in his late 60s now, and And a lot of men have that problem as they get older. And if you're, like, drinking all the time. Yeah. That doesn't help. (laughs) Probably not helping anything. Whiskey dick. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
It's a weird thing to say to your daughter. <laughs> we should write the whiskey dick song. <laughs> whiskey dick, whiskey dick. dick. Do old poor Francis got whiskey dick. Right. Impotent at 66. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Francis had become impotent and there had been no marital relations since the birth of John in 1929. When, how long has this been? It's now 1935, so the son John is six years old Literally now. banged once and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a few times before, before that. Yeah, but. yeah. You know, that was how she snagged him. Gotcha. Okay. So, John was born in 1929, no sex since then, and it is said by those who knew the family that Francis was aware of, and he really had no objection to the affair between Alma and George. So, George is freaking out about Francis, but Francis is really okay with George. He knows that he can't perform for his wife. And right. As long as she's there with him and he's... And honestly, at this point, he's probably mostly in the marriage, not for like any of that stuff, but more for the image of, and, see, I have a faithful wife or whatever. But. Well, and even if he doesn't care about the image of the, you know, to the public, mm-hmm. having a companion to most people, yeah. older people, they want a companion more than they want a sex partner. Now, that's not true for everyone. You know, there are a lot of sex fiends in the world and bless their hearts, let them go as long as they want to go. But yes. may you find a fellow sex fiend to grow old with. Because... But Francis was not that guy. And right. Francis really didn't care to have sex and he wasn't able to. And he knew this was going on and he was all right with it. Okay. So he was sleeping in a room alone every night. And George was sleeping every night in Alma's bed. But nevertheless, George was the one who was jealous of the marriage and Francis's professional and social status because he was never going to have that. George was, he was a chauffeur. He was never going to be a world famous architect. Right, so he was like a blue collar type of guy and this guy had an education and all that stuff. Exactly. So So he was never going to be Francis, Mm -hmm. even though George has something Francis didn't have right now. Doesn't even sound like he's jealous of like the intimacy between the two of them. He's just jealous. He just wants to be George. I mean, I'm sorry. George just wants to be Francis. Yeah. So. I think that's it. He just wishes Francis didn't exist. Okay. George is jealous of the marriage, and he's becoming more and more irrational about Mm -hmm. it. On the evening of March the 24th, 1935, Francis, who, as I mentioned, is 68 years old at this time, he was in his drawing room at home when behind him crept George, who viciously bashed Francis's head in with a croquet mallet. Now, some reports say a carpenter's mallet, which makes more sense because George was he there was like to the do. He was like worker boy, yeah. But it does add insult to injury to be clobbered with a croquet mallet, and so I think that's why people have run with that story instead. Okay. I suspect it was probably a carpenter's mallet. Mm-hmm. After George had gone upstairs and confessed to Alma what he had just done... Oh, so he just straight up told her. He's like, hey, I just killed your husband. (laughs) Alma wanted to protect George, so she swallowed a handful of pills with alcohol, and then she told the constabulary that she had been the one that killed her husband. I'm sorry, the teenage boy is not worth this. (laughs) Apparently, George had also told the truth to the housekeeper, so the secret was out. Okay. Both Alma and George were charged, but George wouldn't participate in his defense. He just wouldn't say anything other than to tell people his name. And Alma had recanted her confession, and she did put up a strong defense. Okay. George was found guilty, and Alma was released. Okay. (laughs) But after all of this, 36-year-old Alma, despite being freed, was now... She was doomed to live the rest of her life in disgrace because, you know, now the secret is out. This 36-year-old woman has been banging this 17-year-old boy. 
that her husband has been murdered because of this affair. But even if it would almost be forgivable if she hadn't gone so far as to try to overdose herself or whatever that was. I and think then, I don't think that she was trying to kill herself. I think it was just more <clears throat> to get sympathy, probably like, oh, I, I murder suicide, but I didn't. I don't know why she took the pills and drank the booze unless it was to give herself the courage to confess. Yeah, maybe just like numb herself a little bit before she went in. Like, oh God, I gotta calm these nerves. (laughs) I'm a little verklempt. (laughs) (laughs) Is it verklempt? That's from the 80s. It's old. I was going to say, that's a new one. No, it's old. It's old. People who knew about this were not looking at her as a victim here. They were looking at her as the seductress Mm -hmm. who had polluted and corrupted innocent young George. And there is truth to that. I mean, it is statutory rape. It is. I don't know if it was back then, but it is now. I mean, it wasn't back then. It would be now. It's still gross. (laughs) And this boy had been known in this town long before she came along, and he was well-respected. Nobody had any problems with him. He never caused any trouble. And then this little trollop comes to town, and now all of a sudden George is a murderer. So, But yeah. I also, I don't know. I think there's two parts to that. Because no, she, it's not like, I mean, maybe she did. Maybe that's just not out there as a testimony. But maybe she, she, I don't think she went ahead and told him, I would like you to get rid of my husband. It doesn't seem like that was a problem for her. So why would she ever want any part of that? So I get what she's guilty no matter what for trying to cover it up for him. But at the same time, she didn't take an active role in the death. She just knew about the death after it happened. So I don't think. No, I see what you're saying. But. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know how to respond to that. It's okay <laughs> because there's nothing really wrong with what you're saying, mm-hmm. but I kind of don't feel that way. I do feel okay. like he was molded by her and manipulated oh, for sure. for into sure. this relationship by her. So when George was sentenced to death by hanging, mm-hmm. the devastated Anna, and I think she really did have feelings for him. Yeah, it's like when you have a breakup, you're still going to love that person even if you're really pissed at them, you know? Yeah, I don't know if it was so much that she was pissed at him, but she knew that she wasn't going to have George, mm-hmm. and no one else was going to have her because she was going to be shunned and alone, and no one in this town wanted anything to do with her now. Rightfully so. So she traveled by train and then by car and maybe on foot. She traveled all the way to Christchurch and went to the Three Arches Railway Bridge. She wrote some notes on the bank of the River Avon and then she stood up walking towards the water and plunged a knife several times into her own heart. And 18-year-old George, he had now turned 18, broke down in tears at the news of her death. So it was <sighs> it was a Shakespearean-like twist. You might say, because she killed herself because George was supposed to be executed. But 320,000 signatures had been collected asking for mercy for George. Again, because Alma was widely considered to have manipulated him and led him astray. Right. He never would have done this in a vacuum. Without Alma coming along and seducing him into this relationship, none of this would have ever happened. And he was too immature to be able to handle this kind of a relationship. And that's the thing. You should know that. You should remember what you were like at 17. And if you are well into your 30s, like, there's no excuse to yeah. think that person can handle those emotions. That's right. Because when one thing goes bad and you're in your teens, that's my whole life will never be the same. Exactly. Nothing's ever going to get better. And in his case, it was true. His whole life never well, was going to be the same. Well, because of a split-second decision, because she put him in a bunch of emotions he wasn't ready for. That's right. So I agree with you on that. But So George's death sentence, because of the, the outcry from the public, 
It was commuted. He was commuted to life in prison, so he was not executed. In fact, George Stoner spent only seven years in prison before he was released to serve in the Second World War. Okay. Because in the Second World War, they were so desperate they to needed have... anybody, yeah. That's right. They needed every single body that was available in, in the Army and to... Well, I mean, if you're a young man who's in prison just sitting there all day, might as well use it for something. Yeah, <laughs> like, and you know? if he got killed, he was, you know, he just was already a convict. Collateral damage, so. so... But he redeemed himself through his bravery in combat. Okay, that's good So idea. once he finished his stint in the war, he was released, and he went on to live a quiet life, a normal life. He married. He had a happy life until the year 2000 when he died of natural causes at the age of 83. Wow. But John, the son, who was six years old when his mother's lover killed oh, his father. Oh, yeah, I forgot about John. And which set into motion the situation for his mother to also take her own life had been orphaned now. So he was passed around to relatives throughout the rest of his childhood. He played rugby and cricket and threw himself into his schoolwork. He really wanted to make something of himself. Right. During World War II, when the UK really feared being invaded by the Nazis, it seemed like it was going to happen at any time, he was evacuated via ship to Montreal, and then by train he traveled to Vancouver. We don't want him to find out about what happened to Tim McLean on the train across Canada. But... Yikes. So John ended up in Vancouver, near the same province as Victoria. Victoria is the capital of British Columbia. Okay. So, John now lives in Vancouver. But British Columbia is where his father had been so revered for his designs of the parliament and some other buildings there. I mean, people there didn't know who John was. He traveled by train across the country, Mm -hmm. got to Vancouver. His maternal grandmother, within weeks of his arrival, she died of natural causes. I mean, do you not see this kid growing up and he's going to become a serial killer because of all the shit he's been through? So Emotional damage. Yeah, so now his maternal grandmother is dead. He's now 12, and he's been passed to another relative. Oh, God, I didn't realize he was only 12 at this point. Yeah, because he was 6 when they died. So he started school in Vancouver, and by chance, just totally by chance... The school he started to attend had a competition going on that they were encouraging students to participate in, and the competition was to design a new campus for the school. John entered and won. <laughs> so so obviously, he follows in his father's That's footsteps so and has, has a talent for architecture. So he left that school at 16 and began working for a logging company so that he could send himself to Oregon State College to study architecture. His dad would be so proud of him. He would have Mm. been. He really would. And he learned at that time about the groundbreaking work of an architect named Frank Lloyd Wright. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh, say it again. Uh, Frank? Frank, I think? Lloyd. Wright. All right. So, <laughs> so he started studying the work of Frank Lloyd Wright, and he was just smitten with it. He just loved it because of the, the different aspects about it that were so groundbreaking at that time. Well, that wasn't too long after Frank Lloyd Wright had his big come up, was it? You mean the fire and the massacre? No, I don't think that was his big come up. I meant like his <laughs> I didn't know what you meant by that. <laughs> Well, he was working from the late 1800s. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. John Rattenberry, now in love with Frank Lloyd Wright's work, Mm -hmm. applied to Taliesin in Wisconsin, which was Frank Lloyd Wright's school. Oh, okay. And 
he was accepted, but not to Taliesin in Wisconsin. He was accepted to attend Taliesin West, which is in Arizona. And so he went there. He began studying and working at Taliesin, and he was befriended by Wright, who had some coincidences with John's father. Okay. Because they both had the first name Francis. Mm-hmm. They both were born the same year. And they also both had partners that were 30 years younger. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so it was a yeah, odd coincidence. It's anyway. kind of funny. This is the person you should decide to look up to. Well, yeah, he was very much like him. And well, it's kind of like you, they always say, when you have a good relationship with your father, you go after a man just like your father. I can see that being kind of... Well, yeah, but Frank Lloyd Wright was known as kind of a son of a bitch. And it sounds to me like well, Francis Rattenberry like... was also kind of a I son of a bitch. I was going to say, he that's ex- so, went after his dad. <laughs> but you remember the first Architect Mayhem I did where I talked about people think that architects are generally assholes? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of truth to that. Well, there, yeah, it's you have like... to have a, sort of a chip on your shoulder in order to carry on with that. Well, so like a, being a surgeon, the surgeons are generally just not good with having good, friendly talk That's with right. patients because yeah, they they're... don't do it. So it's just. So anyway, John did very well. He became a key member of Wright's staff. He worked on some of the seminal buildings from Wright's practice, including the Guggenheim Museum. Francis Rattenberry's son actually helped on the Guggenheim That's Museum design. And he went on to marry another architect, and then he continued working. And he said he never felt bitterness towards George Stoner, who had murdered his father. He said that Stoner had been a young, impressionable boy. He was only 12 years older than John. Oh, I didn't even think about that aspect, yeah. He he said that George had been seduced by a beautiful older woman, mature, and she was worldly and much more sophisticated than he was. Mm -hmm. And he had been a victim of circumstance. He also said that perhaps his life had turned out to be a happier one than if he had lived the life of privilege that he'd been born into because he learned to work hard and he appreciated those and cherished the people that he loved. And he never would have ended up where he did. No, he wouldn't have. Following the exact path he was meant to follow, so. That's right. So his life was very successful in the end. As for Francis Rattenberry, who was the original victim in my story, you may have forgotten about him by now. No, I got it. (laughs) Despite his contributions to the design world, he lay buried in an unmarked grave for 72 years. I have no idea why there was never a headstone on his grave for 72 years. And in 2007, God, my voice is really going hoarse. In 2007, a family friend finally erected a headstone to memorialize his grave in a cemetery close to his home in Bournemouth, Dorset, UK. That's really heartbreaking. I'm surprised John never... I don't think he was ever in a position to. Well, probably not, but... So that's the third edition of Architect Mayhem, where we had a victim today instead of a, a murderous architect. Well, I'm a little bit sad, because most of the people it didn't really work out for. But you know what? Because of John, I'm, I'm feeling okay. <laughs> John did really well for John, himself. John so. did really well for himself. And Did you say when John passed away? He did. I As guess. of the last article I found about him, he mm-hmm. was still alive in 2012 or something like that. And wow, okay. So I don't know. I mean, he's people are living to 100 now, now so. <laughs> I don't know if he's still alive now, but but so he had a good life. Despite the odds. So, did you do you have any fun facts you learned this week or anything like that? I don't. I don't. I had too much <laughs> excitement trying to set up this shit for this. <laughs> I know. For this video recording. It's been a weird week around here. <laughs> you know what? All of our weeks anymore are weird weeks. Yeah. Our handyman have a normal one. Our handyman stood us up again this week. Yeah, so handyman didn't show up. 
I got some huge canvases. Yeah, uh, and she was in the shower when they got here, so <laughs> these canvases, keep in mind, are probably... They're five feet by four feet. Yeah, they're, they're literally the same size as me, basically. <laughs> not that I'm four feet long. <laughs> that would be wide. You Maybe, are not. I kind of am in this sweater. I'm like a little flying squirrel. You would not fit that sweater around those canvases, so that is not true. I think I could. All right, let's just... Okay. All right, we will put pictures on Instagram of all of the players in today's stories and we've had some really good dialogue going on with some people there so if you have any stories that you think would be great for us to cover anything Mm -hmm. like that we would love to hear your ideas also i wanted to add we had we finally have a canadian listener (laughs) i'm very excited about it whoever you are please message me because i'll send you free merch and i don't know what that is yet it might just be a piece of paper with my name (laughs) on it saying thank you but hit us up (laughs) all right so that was a complete lie we have no merch at this point we have no merch but but you can still submit to our patreon (laughs) still no patreon Um. no stop lying to people But hopefully today's story about Canada will... More uplifting, yeah. It puts them in a better light. (laughs) Uh, And on that note, I think that's just about all I've got for you this week. I think so, too. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in. We will see you guys next week. Bye, y'all. Bye.